The time is now. everybody this is employment law now and i am your host mike schmidt volume three episode 44 how exciting is this so much is going on we are in the thick of 2019 there's all kinds of things happening in the courts and the agencies federal state local it's an exciting time to be dealing with employment law it's an exciting time to have a podcast talking about employment law and thank you so much for listening, uh, particularly for those of you who are the regular listeners and those of you who continue to send me great comments by email. Uh, keep doing that. I read them, and uh, I am real grateful for you listening. So don't we just love when the agencies out there, particularly the federal agencies, offer a little help to employers? So much younger. So the United States Department of Labor is one of those agencies that has given us a lot of help in the last few weeks, and I wanted to talk about that in today's episode. First off, the Department of Labor has issued three, yes, three opinion letters on some issues of importance in the employment law world. Now, opinion letters uh, are often a very helpful tool for employers particularly because in many circumstances employers can rely on them when they've acted in conformity with them they can rely on them as a good faith defense in certain kind of claims such as wage and hour claims under the fair labor standards act so they not only give you a real good insight into how the agency believes employers should act and should not act and how uh, an agency like the Department of Labor interprets uh, the regulations and the requirements um, that are within its jurisdiction. But again, employers can actually hold these opinion letters up as a defense to many claims that are brought against them. The Obama administration, the Department of Labor under the Obama administration, really went away from this practice of issuing opinion letters, but now it's making a comeback under the Trump administration, Department of Labor, and as I said, they're, they're very useful. You can actually go to the Department of Labor's website and search yourself for 
all of their opinion letters that are in the archives. You can search for particular issues that you're interested in, um, and they're, they're real informative and real helpful. Most of the time, they are limited to the particular facts as described in the request for the opinion letter, and the opinion letters themselves will typically say that. But when you have a fact situation that is comparable to what's being described in the opinion letter, um, employers view that as a positive and tend to rely on those in their particular case. So the Department of Labor has issued its first three opinion letters for uh, the 2019 year, and they're real interesting. The first one deals with this scenario. You have an employee with an accrued uh, PTO, paid time off, and that employee expects to also need some FM, FMLA uh, leave of absence down the road. So the employee goes to the employer and says that he or she wants to first exhaust the PTO time, the paid time off, and then when that runs out, use the 12 weeks of FMLA. In other words, the employee is asking to elect the consecutive use of PTO and FMLA, essentially deferring the designation and use of FMLA time. Of course, the employer, the company, is trying to be nice, and in this case, trying to give the employee what he or she wants, and says, sure, not a problem. Well, the Department of Labor's opinion letter on this said, no good, no good. Even though the employer is trying to do the right thing, maybe trying to be nice here, the Department of Labor has taken the position that deferring the designation of FMLA constitutes interference under the FMLA, interference of the employee's rights under the FMLA. Now, to be clear, the employer is allowed to require or the employee may elect to substitute paid time off to cover part of the unpaid FMLA time. In other words, have them still run concurrently, even though part of the unpaid FMLA is now going to be paid because there's some PTO available. But that option, according to the Department of Labor, was never intended to permit consecutive designations. Again, concurrence okay, but consecutive designations is the problem. So according to the Department of Labor, as soon as the employer becomes aware that there is a basis for an FMLA qualifying leave, the employer is obligated to designate that leave as FMLA leave and give notice of that designation within the five business days. This cannot be a choice taken by the employee and it cannot be a choice granted by the employer. Scenario number two, the second opinion letter issued by the Department of Labor. You have a company that's trying to do a great thing when it comes to community service. So the company creates this community service program for employees that's voluntary. Nobody's obligated, nobody's required to do anything. If the employees wanted to participate, they could do so during their working hours, and they'd get paid for that. Or they could also participate outside of working hours, and they wouldn't be paid for that time participating in the community service program. On top of that, imagine that the company awards a bonus in its discretion to the particular team of employees that resulted in the greatest community impact after this project was completed. The question is, for all of that time that was not being compensated because the employees were working on the community service program outside of working hours, is that time compensable because the employer introduced this concept that a bonus 
could be awarded based on the participation. Well, the Department of Labor here, in an opinion letter that seems to favor employers this time, the Department of Labor said, because there was no pressure to participate, it was voluntary, because it was not a program that was really controlled by the employer, again, it was voluntary, and there was discretion whether or not to award the bonus and in what amount if it was awarded. The time spent on activities outside of working hours was not required to be compensable. In other words, awarding a monetary bonus in the company's discretion did not render the time spent in that program compensable. So it's a good opinion letter, I think, because it continues to promote this uh, notion or promote the use uh, and initiative that employers have in developing community interest and community-based, uh, community service-based programs for its employees. The third Department of Labor opinion letter that was just issued deals with much less of a widely applicable issue, but there's an interesting principle, I think, that you should be thinking about here and taking away from this. The less than widely applicable issue, the janitorial exception to minimum wage and overtime requirements. There are some states out there, New York being one of them, that has a specific janitorial exception to the overtime requirement. In other words, under certain circumstances, if the employee meets the definition of a residential janitor, that individual is not entitled to the same uh, overtime compensation. However, there is no janitorial exception under federal law, under the FLSA. So the Department of Labor, in this opinion letter, made very clear that reliance on a state law exception does not constitute a good faith defense to non-compliance with the FLSA. So in other words, just because you think that you are covered under a state law exemption doesn't mean that you're not violating the federal law, the FLSA, if there's no similar exemption under the federal law. It does not give you a defense. You can't say, well, you shouldn't find me to be in violation of the FLSA because I was complying with the state law doesn't work like that. So that's a real key takeaway here. Uh, and it's important to highlight uh, that point with the notion of make sure you understand that you have your typical federal law exemptions that most people know about, you know, the white collar exemptions, the professional, the administrative, the executive exemptions. There are a whole host of other exemptions under federal law that might apply to your industry, to your company, and there may be some exemptions under state law that you can take advantage of uh, beyond those three mostly known um, white collar exemptions. So take away one do some diligence, see if there are exemptions under state or federal law that might apply to your particular situation, even if they're not the sexy ones that get all of the uh, news and the press that you've heard about. Takeaway number two, just because you are entitled to the use of an exemption under state law does not mean that that enables you to violate federal law when no similar exemption applies. So yeah, the Department of Labor is really helping us out. And in addition to those three opinion letters, the Department of Labor has now issued two proposed rules, has engaged in some rulemaking activity that I think is also designed to help and give some advice, particularly to employers. 
So the first one uh, of the two proposed rules recently, and again, this is in addition to obviously the proposed overtime exemption rules and the changes there, and you've heard and read a lot about that. We've talked about that on uh, in a prior episode. These are two new ones that were just issued by the Department of Labor. The first one deals with this joint employer roller coaster. Uh, as you know, uh, lots of agencies, lots of courts are chiming in on this joint employer issue. And for those who have, I don't know, lived uh, under a rock or on another planet and don't know what I'm talking about, the joint employer is trying to hold two or more entities responsible under an employment law as being that employee's employer for purposes of the employment law obligations. So it's not necessarily just your direct employer and the entity who you seemingly are employed by quite obviously but also trying to hold some other entity because either the relationship between the two entities is close enough or because there's also a separate relationship between the employee and this second entity so after almost 60 years 60 years of a lot of inactivity on this issue the Department of Labor issued a new proposed rule on April 1st 2019 to determine whether joint employment exists and they've created a four-factor balancing test one whether the joint employer actually hires or fires the employee two whether the alleged joint employer supervises and controls the employees work schedule or the work conditions Three, whether the supposed joint employer determines the employee's rate of pay and the method of payment. And factor four, whether the supposed joint employer maintains the employee's employment records. If you don't find that these four factors exist, the Department of Labor is most likely going to find that a joint employment relationship does not exist. And this new proposed rule really narrows the circumstances where you would find joint employment for Department of Labor purposes. Again, remember, don't get tripped up. Depending on what your issue is, that will determine which test you're going to look at. So if it's a uh, potential joint employment issue for purposes of the National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA, well, you're going to have to consider what the NLRB says on this. But if it is an issue that's governed by the Department of Labor, uh, you now have if this rule is the same in its final form you now have a rule that is certainly more employer friendly and will as I said narrow the circumstances where you would find two or more entities to be joint employers so in short what you're going to be looking at now is whether there is actual control asserted actual control by this alleged joint employer not necessarily just where there is a right to control or there are contractual provisions reserving the right to control, whether there is actual control asserted by this supposed joint employer. Uh, and what's real interesting about this proposed rule, and you can certainly go find it um, if you want on the Internet, if you haven't seen it already, or please feel free to email me, and I'm happy to send you a copy of the proposed rule. Um, but the interesting thing, or the other interesting thing about the proposed rule is that it really delves into this a little bit more and talks about uh, specific instances that would not constitute joint employment now. Um, so, for example, the proposed rule talks about how economic dependence as a concept would not really be relevant to this four-factor test. Operating as a franchisor in and of itself 
does not determine the status of that franchisor um, being a joint employer or not. And so much of what we've been talking about and fighting over has come lately in the franchisor-franchisee setting. And here you have the Department of Labor in its proposed rule essentially saying that simply because you're a franchisor, that in and of itself does not determine the joint employment status. Nor do a couple of other things that we see uh, in, in uh, the real world so often. Simply because you as an entity are instituting a wage floor or you're instituting harassment policies or safety measures on the franchisee or on uh, this entity number two, that also does not in and of itself make you a joint employer that is responsible for the violation of employment laws. And there's a whole host of other examples that are given in this proposed rule. Uh, as I said, the NLRB has tackled this issue. We've talked about it on the podcast. They issued uh, a, their own proposed rule back in September of 2018 requiring substantial, direct, and immediate control over the essential terms and conditions of employment. Again, not just some indirect control or the right or reservation to control, substantial, direct, and immediate control over the essential terms and conditions of the employment. And now that is consistent with the Department of Labor's requirement in its proposed rule that there have to be actual control and not just the right or reservation to control. Both of these proposed rules by the NLRB and the Department of Labor now reflect uh, a Republican-led administration's desire to limit the expansion of the joint employer rule. Both are subject to the public comment period for 60 days. We'll see what comments they receive. We'll see how that impacts, if at all, the final published rule to come from both the Department of Labor and the NLRB, and we'll certainly be here to report on that. Lastly, the Department of Labor has also issued a proposed rule providing much-needed clarification on how to calculate an employee's regular rate of pay. Here, too, there has been nothing going on in the Department of Label, uh, Label, on the Department of Labor front for about 50 years. But now, on March 28, 2019, the Department of Labor has issued a new proposal to clarify what must be factored into an employee's regular rate thereby also impacting how the overtime calculation is made. Because remember, we all know that the overtime rule is one and a half times blah, 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 right? But remember that the rule is one and a half times the employee's regular rate. The rule is not that you have to pay overtime an hour, uh, one and a half times an hourly rate. Employers tend to get tripped up on that. It's The overtime obligation is that you pay time and a half of the employee's regular rate. So the million dollar question becomes, well, how do you calculate regular rate? What kinds of forms of compensation are included in the regular rate calculation? And here, the Department of Labor, uh, in its proposed rule, has clarified that there are certain perks, certain forms of compensation that must be included still, but it also relaxes the regulations as to other perks so as not to discourage their use by employers. So, for example, expressly excluded from the regular rate calculation, in other words, things that do not have to be included in the calculation when determining an employee's regular rate are some of the following. Truly discretionary bonuses, payments for unused paid sick leave, 
certain wellness program payments and benefits, gym access pay, fitness classes, employee discounts on certain retail goods and services, certain tuition programs, reimbursements for certain business-related expenses, such as travel expenses that don't exceed federal requirements. Here, too, we are subject to a public comment period for 60 days, uh, and it will be interesting to see, number one, what kind of comments the Department of Labor gets from the public, uh, but also what impact, if any, those comments have on the final rule that ultimately gets published. So the takeaway, I think, from today's episode is there's a lot going on. We talk about, don't worry about the federal only because there's so much going on on the state and local levels. Well, here is an example of the last couple of months we've got this federal agency, the United States Department of Labor, really taking some action in the form of three significant opinion letters, two additional proposed rules um, on top of the proposed overtime rule that really dominated the press. Um, so it's important to stay abreast as to what's going on. It's important um, if you are comfortable doing it, getting involved in the comment period. Uh, and if you're interested either alone or as an association or as a group with other employers in submitting comments to any of these proposed rulemaking initiatives, feel free to reach out and uh, I'll be happy to help you navigate that process. It's important for all stakeholders to be heard, whether you're an employer, whether you're an employee or somewhere in between, and I don't even know what that means. Um, but it's important for all stakeholders to not only stay abreast and understand what's going on, but to be active uh, where you want to be and where it might impact your company and your industry. So I hope all of this was helpful. Um, and at the end of the day, I hope all of your labor is productive.